Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Father Leader, a podcast assessing leadership and what makes someone a good leader. Are they born or are they made? Leadership qualities and more. This is a podcast you want to subscribe if you want to be a better leader. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural podcast of Follow the Leader. I'm your host, Ellie Mandelbaum, and this is a podcast about leadership and what makes one a good leader. If they are born or made in Follow the Leader, I interview a variety of leaders to understand how they become the leader they are and what makes them effective. In this episode, we are speaking with one of my close friends, Joseph Gittler, founder and chairman of Leket, the leading national food bank in Israel. Joseph started Leket in 2003. A few years after making Aliyah, after witnessing significant food wastage in Israel at a time of rising poverty, Joseph's vision and steady hand has, has led the organization from a simple one-man operation to Israel's largest food rescue organization. Joseph, welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. I know there's a really a lot we could go over in that initial uh, intro. Um, why don't you fill in a few of the blanks on your background? Sure. Well, thank you, Ellie. It's good uh to be in this studio in my house um, on this, and I'm honored that you chose me, or was I the only one who said yes for this initial podcast, but we won't go into that too much, and thank you to all those listening for this inaugural uh, podcast, which I'm sure is going to be a big success. So um, I've been, uh, I grew up in New York, been in Israel since September 2000. Uh, you know, you get into the, right into the beginning, you get into one of the crux of the matters. Are leaders uh, born or uh, uh, created? I think if, if I think about uh, from the times we've known each other, our childhoods together, I like to think that I had leadership uh, qualities, that that was something that I was interested in. Maybe I didn't think of it in those terms, because sure. I don't think you think of it like that when you're a teenager. But if you think about like, in our friends, who was getting stuff organized or who was making plans, I think if we asked, I would probably have been the leader in that uh, in that category. I had a business card when I was a teenager that said, Joseph Gittler, call for a good time. I know that doesn't sound like it. Yeah, I'm going to get some comments I just want to point, I want to put there are people that did call. Yeah. No one, what I wanted, no one called for. So, uh, unfortunately, but I, I probably said something something about me. And my mother always told me, you know, you like to talk, so do something with that. And so I think anyone who's in leadership or anyone who uh, wants to take the lead in something, the most important thing they can do is really find what they're good at and what they're passionate about. Not everyone gets that opportunity. But those of us who do um, and take it like a, you know, take the bull by the horns uh, the possibilities are really limitless. But, but you know, I'll go into that in a minute because I know, you know, when you were speaking about, you looked at a number of different things when you were starting to focus on what issues were going on in Israel. But before that even, I mean, in high school, right, in MTA, did you, were you, you know, pres, you know class president? Did you, did you have any ambition or were you just like, hey, this wasn't for me, right. it wasn't my time? So, again, you know, the, I'm... Hoping I don't know who's going to listen to this, so you know. Luckily, this is not live, so no one can call. No one can call in. But um, 
I think uh, the I I don't think I ever had um, God I don't even remember any formal role in student government. In fact, I don't even remember if Yeshiva University High School had student government. I don't think we did really have anything like that, if I remember correctly. But where opportunities arose, so for example, you know, uh, yearbook, I was one of the people heavily involved in the yearbook. I did help start while I was in high school. Not that it took off in any big way, but I was part of uh, a group between Yeshiva University and Yeshiva University High School. We started our own student APAC. It was called ASAC. Okay, mm-hmm. and so... Um, there were opportunities for leadership, uh, nothing major. I don't, you know, I wouldn't call myself, uh, I wasn't a high school do-gooder. I wasn't running out all the time, but I, I like to think that here and there were opportunities arose, but I think more it was within my group of friends or maybe in camp, mm-hmm. place like that where my uh, big mouth allowed me to take, uh, take on leadership. Okay, so, so, and I, I, I definitely will, you know, plug, you know, Banana Kiva here since we both went to it. Um, do you think, you know, going to that camp gave you an aspect of insight into what leadership's about, right? Did, did, again, yes or no, I mean, again, it doesn't make a difference to me, but, like, you know, they were definitely structured compared to other camps where they tried to hone in on leadership qualities or what leaders need to do to make it more... Well, I think uh, a place like B'nai Akiva, which is, uh, you know, a, a Zionist youth movement for those listening who, who don't know what it is, which is a possibility. You may break out of uh, you know, <laughs> my Jewish pigeonhole. <laughs> yes, we may, we may break out. You never know if, if the right guest saying the right things. Um, look, I think certainly that because it's not just because B'nai Akiva is a movement and the camps we went to were not just summer camps where it's about having a good time, but there was a deeper... Uh, deeper meaning to them and a deeper movement. So, of course, part of what they're doing is trying to create leaders. You know, they have a goal. B'nai Kiva, successful or not, one of its goals is to get people to move to Israel, people of our background. So, in order to make that a reality, they, of course, have to create the type of atmosphere where people have to, you know, whether it's, hey, how do I get my bunk to participate in singing? Which you say, what's the big deal? But even that, you have to come with leadership. How do I get quiet in this dining room? Is there some strategy I can do to get kids to be interested in prayer? All mm-hmm. these things create leadership when you have to figure out how to do these very difficult <laughs> tasks, which, by the way, are difficult for adults as well. So, you know, so I know in YU, you, you know, you pretty much after YU went to law school, did a couple of jobs after that, made Aliyah. So... After you made Aliyah, you started looking around. So tell us, you know, take us a little bit through that phase and how you decided to come up with what what was originally called Table to Table. Yes, yeah, so in, uh, in September 2000, my wife and I made Aliyah. That mean, the Hebrew word Aliyah means going up. So we moved to Israel. That's what it means as a Jew to come to the Holy Land. And we were very fortunate. It's been the dream of the Jewish people to return to Zion for thousands of years. And unfortunately, I say we're still one of the lucky few. <laughs> joined, let's put it this way, if my friend Ellie hadn't made it here, it would have been a big disappointment, as he talked the talk, and he eventually did walk the walk, which we're very pleased that he's here. Um, look, I came to Israel, I would not say, with any goals of getting necessarily in the nonprofit sector in a leadership position, outside of a leader, a lay leader, you know, maybe a board member, um, and that's what's expected, and that's the kind of family I come from, that's certainly the kind of family my wife comes from leadership positions in charities, but leading a charity that you start, that was not part of my uh, initial thinking. I worked in high tech for a few years, which was great, and I learned a lot there. A lot, of, I think a lot of 
ways that uh, that I eventually started and ran the organization in its early days came from working in high tech, working in a startup that was very impactful. I didn't realize it at the time, and you don't always realize it, but it was, and some of the lessons I learned there. But uh, it, no, it, getting into the game, I mean, now was not part of the plan. You know, what happened was is that um, Israel's always had historic poverty. And uh, during the uh, Second Intifada and after September 11th, that historic poverty and, I should add, with the great success of Israel, of the Israeli economy, all that uh, created new poverty, which was much more American-style poverty, which is a poverty of the working poor, people who are working, making a living, but are struggling to make ends meet in a country which is gentrifying and where the cost of living has just gone up tremendously. And as a naive uh, person in my mid-twenties, not understanding that this seems to be uh, what all Western capitalist countries have as a situation. They have a certain percent of the population that just cannot live in the strictures of uh, the type of a, the type of salaries they're getting. I really just said to myself one day, I need to try to help these people. How am I going to help them? Well, I can't change salary structures. That's an, you know that's way bigger picture. That's that's employers. That's government policy. That's out of out of any one individual's hands. And what I was surprised at to this day, I'm still shocked by, is that there was no food bank in the state of Israel. Lots of feeding organizations doing fabulous, you know, God's work, but no City Harvest, no New York Food Bank, no Long Island Cares, no Chicago Food Depository, no Los Angeles Food Bank, all these mega organizations which have existed in the United States for decades here in the land of so many not-for-profits. This basic one was missing. So explain what a food bank is, though. I mean, so what do you, again, there are organizations that serve food, but what is the food bank, though? So the idea of a food bank is we are an umbrella organization. We're supposed to be above the actual places that feed the poor directly. And our job is to try to find food sources in bulk. That could be talking to the farming community, packing houses, the catering community. In Israel, that could be hotels, the Israeli army. And to try to see what they have available, what's going to waste, and then figure out the logistical solutions for getting that food and then transporting it, free of charge in our case, to over 200 agencies who feed needy Israelis. That's the basic idea of a food bank. You know, food bank is sometimes of a misnomer, because when you think of a bank, it's a place where you store, right? And you can, I guess, take out deposits whenever you want. Um, but we're, we're more of a free seller, not even a wholesaler, right? Because mm-hmm. a wholesaler... It would be a wholesaler if we charge the agencies that we give food to some sort of handling fees or charge them a dollar a dollar a kilo, a penny a kilo. We deliver all our food free of charge directly to any agency that we work with that wants to get that food. And just to give, to give people, you know, an idea, you know, how many people now are you, you know, affecting? I mean, how many? So Leket works with 210 agencies throughout Israel. Jewish and non-Jewish, or a secular organization, a religious that works with all sectors of Israeli society. And those agencies serve somewhere between 150 and 200,000 people every week. Sometimes it changes a bit with the season. Uh, around the holidays, they may add more people. 
when they're feeling uh, that their financial situation is better. And when I say help, that could be someone getting a meal. It could be someone getting five meals. It could be a family getting a 50-pound package of fruits and vegetables from that kid. And it could be an individual getting a few kilos of fruits and vegetables. But an impact of many, many tens of thousands of people on a daily basis, which is pretty amazing. Cool. And so... You know, early on, you know, I remember, you know, this is where we'll focus a little bit more about how you, be, you know, the leader you became. And you started off literally, I mean, taking your car, going to different halls, picking up the extra food, and then you got your friends into it, right? And so how did you realize that, okay, you know, I can't do this myself and I need to extend it, right? Because that's really the beginning of, a, of, of the leadership is how do you get other people involved? Okay, so, so two comments on that. Number one, the only reason Leckett even got started was because I went to other existing organizations, which I think is a good business lesson for anyone, but certainly the nice thing in the nonprofit world is people are very open to sharing. And I said one was dealing in dry goods and dealing with a lot of Israel's leading dry goods companies. And another one was collecting excess food in Tel Aviv. And I said to them, well, what about all the excess food uh, that's not dry goods, that's refrigerated, that's farmed, that's chilled, that's cooked? No, that's above us. Well, what about picking up leftover food? Not in Tel Aviv. No, no, I've got enough to do. So the first lesson I got was this is an issue that people care about, want to deal with, but the existing people who are would be the right uh, avenues for this are not going to do it. So that was number one. I, ha- I felt like I had to do it. And very quickly I realized one of the reasons they didn't do it is because it's nice that I was driving around my own car. But when every caterer that you're dealing with in a... 30, 40, 50 square mile uh, radius wants you at the same time. So very quickly you realize it's nice what I'm doing on my own, but I need partnership. And really, I did not do anything special to attract volunteers. Um, At the time, we had this great listserv um, called the Ranana List. I need a plumber. I need a this. I need a that. I posted on there. My name is Joseph Gittler. I collect food at night and distribute it to organizations feeding the poor. I need help. Who wants to come to my house and learn about it? And about 25 people showed up, one of them being Helene Mittman, who, you know, works at Camp Moshava I.O. We lose her We lose her every summer. She was one of my first volunteers. Now she's on staff for many years. And people came. And really, I, I always like to say we were off to the races after that because Having volunteers allowed me immediately to think about, okay, can we get more catering halls on board? Can I now start and say, now I'm not going to go out at night. I'm just going to organize the night pickups. Let me see what I can do picking up during the day. And so that's when I started to knock on the doors of corporate cafeterias and army bases and basically make the same pitch to them. If you have excess food in your cafeteria... If you can do something with it, if you can make money off it, let's let it sell. We're, our business model is very simple. If you can make money, I'm not looking for philanthropy from the people who have the food. If they mm-hmm. want to be philanthropic and give us food that they could make money off of, that's their business. But that's not what I'm looking for. That's not My core business is what's going to waste, and if it's going to waste, let me give it to people who need it. Got it. And so, you know, but from the 25 people, right? So when did yeah. you realize, okay, this is a little bit more than just a, you know... Also very quickly. Very quickly, I realized, I think by March 2003, we had hired our first part-time employee. So September 2003, you started by March? Uh, we, we really only st- I really started January, okay. February. I picked up food on my own for a month or two. Mm-hmm. 
March, some volunteers. Maybe a month after that, first employee, part-time, uh, sitting in my in my old house in in my office with me. <laughs> and then by June, we had already re- we already had our first small refrigerated van and our first driver. And you know, the big thing there wasn't publicity. We were able to get people were excited. New initiatives. Especially an initiative that, that people always talk about. Everyone talks about all the food that's getting mm-hmm. wasted, but no one did anything about it. So people were excited. So it wasn't hard to get into the press um, and to, to make noise that way. But the big challenge that, that almost anyone who wants to start a business or a charity is, is that access to capital to get things off the ground. And that I was very lucky from connections I had, from the family I have, from friends that I have, from a friend I remember very distinctly, a friend here in Renan who said... I don't want you to have to go to ask people for money in the shul. I'll do that for you because uh, I'm one, you know, I don't want people like you're coming to shul. Oh, did I give this guy enough money or now does he just hate me or, <laughs> or avoid me on the street, which plenty of people do anyway. So, Got it. Okay. So you know, we're going to go more into a little bit more now and talk about impacts, you know, as a leader, right? And so did you have someone that, you know, helped you think about leadership in a certain way or, or you went to you know, when you had questions about building it up. And I know your father was really, you know. So th- this reminds me of, uh, you know, there's that podcast by Guy Raz. Yes. How I Built This, which I've talked about actually doing something similar in the charity sphere. Um, he always asked the question at the end, you know, uh, was it uh, you or was it, you know, Mazel Luck? I'm like, who's going to answer the question and say it was me? So like... This question, even if I don't have anyone I talk to, I better come up with someone quickly. No. So look, I think I did, I'm a very outgoing person, as I think you hear from this and you know for a long time. Um, But I really would say a lot, there are always people I talk to, but I really, a lot of this, I really just did on my own, on the fly. Um, I think when you're trying to build something and you have a vision, and I only had a little vision in the beginning, but that vision grew. Um, it's the same way, like, we didn't really have a proper board in the beginning. Mm. You know why? Because I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. Yeah. Okay? And why did I think of that? Because I saw, you know, the way, for example, that my wife's father, who's certainly a mentor uh, to me, I, you know, my father, my father was a mentor and had great leadership qualities, as does my mother, but, you know, he and his brother built up this, you know, big business, and... You know, there was no board. You know, the board was them. They were the board. You know, they... uh, I just don't... I I can't imagine them outside of talking to each other. At least they had that. uh, Making big decisions by calling up a friend and saying, what do you think about this? So I guess what I'm saying is I felt like I had enough confidence that... uh, But who knows? Maybe if I had uh, asked more people for advice... Maybe we wouldn't be where we are today. We'd be twice of where we are today. Well, so so early on, did you feel that there was a mistake you made or something that you realized, oh, if I did this, it would have been better off? Or like, did you have that have that moment? So one question I ask myself a lot is the, the, the when I when I wanted to get quick answers from caterers, especially yes. So I came up with a very simple marketing message to them. We will pick it up free of charge and deliver it free of charge. Which, like, people go for that. They like that. Um, and, you know, over the years, I've always said to myself, did I create a monster of customer service, which I could never extricate myself 
from. You know, and maybe if I had spoken to people who had a lot of business experience, they would have said to me, well, Joseph, you know, of the 50 caterers you call, 25 of them give them this marketing message and see how they react. And another 25 say something else to them. Now, of course, you know, sometimes when you have muddled messages, word gets out, wait, let get, this one let gets out, is doing it for free. And this one. So sometimes it's hard to play that coin. The same way sometimes, uh, i give another example. We've had offers over the, we do the same thing with, with farmers, right? Like we try to make it as simple as possible for anyone to donate their food. And every once in a while we'll get a farmer who'll say to us, well, you know, I'll let you in my field, pick it, but 25% you need to leave for me. And we say, well, we just can't do that. And the reason we don't want to do that is we're afraid a word gets out. Leket doesn't just pick for the poor now, they'll also pick for the farmer. <laughs> okay, or we've had instances where we've had to buy, we have a project with the government where we guarantee a certain grade of crop and we guarantee a certain, um, a, certain a, a minimum of seven crops per box that we're sending to needy families. We've been able, since that project started, to provide about 95% of it from our day-to-day activities. Mm -hmm. But here and there, we don't have what we need, and we very quietly have to buy some stuff in the marketplace. And we're always, we do it very quietly because we're very concerned. Farmers are going to say, wait, like it has money to buy? Why am I letting them take their stuff for free? Mm -hmm. So we have to, like, say, I say we do that with, like, a... You know, a Swiss private Swiss bank account. We don't because we don't have that. Like that, I don't get myself in trouble. Yeah. Um, but we're we're very so. These some of those kind of big picture decisions in the beginning. I think in hindsight, I think it's it's a really important point that you bring up. Some of those things, maybe if I had said, "Oh, hey, um, you know, I have a lot of friends who worked in McKinsey. Let's sit down and talk through the ramifications." I may have come to the exact same decision, but at least I would have given it some more. Thought and maybe that's a good lesson from when you're getting something started up. It's you know it's like trying to write the Talmud. You mm. know the Talmud attempted to come up with every imaginable case that would happen and it failed at that. Okay, right? because it's impossible to think of every ramification of anything. But perhaps I would not have second thoughts about some of the decisions I made at the beginning. Got it. And so, you know, from there, you know, as a grown, you know. And you've gotten people. So, you know, the first year, you know, you said you know, within five months you had a couple of people, but it's grown now. And how many people now are working in Leckett? Okay, so Leckett has about 110 employees, paid employees. We host about 50,000 volunteers a year, most of them for a couple of hours at a time, uh, picking fruits or vegetables, repacking, uh, helping us in our office, all the kind of stuff that agencies uh, get for free. We've we've uh, sometimes just for fun we'll we'll run all the volunteer hours, and we realize that to, we'd, we'd have a staff of four to five hundred people if we uh, translated that into full time positions. So it's a it's a major organization uh, with a lot of moving parts, uh, very inspirational I think to a lot of people from what we've accomplished. Certainly, I like to believe one of the leading charities founded in Israel, let's say in the last uh, quarter century. But very, I'm very greedy, and the reason I'm greedy is because I still have large waiting lists of agencies that would like help from Leket, and from our estimates, we're still getting maybe 5% of the food that's available, and we have no competition. As much as I ask for it, as much as I beg and plead for more organizations to get into this business, it's messy, it's complicated, no one wants a piece of it. 
So, you know, with that part, you know, you spit inspiration, right? So that's one of the things I want to, I want to, so you have 50,000 people coming a year to volunteer. You have 110 employees. How do you, how do you inspire them, right? Is there, is there, is there something that's, again, and you have an infectious personality and, you know, you, you, you definitely have a, the charisma, but it's not an easy thing to get people inspired. So right, I, and twofold. One is on the donation front, and the other part is also keeping them active, actually doing it, working. So I think that for Lekka, we lucked out in the in the sense that we have these mass volunteering opportunities, and everyone who comes to volunteer with us, this is just not something they do in their day to day life. So that's inspirational for them, right? Right off the bat, then they think about all the other repercussions. This food would have gone to waste. Um, I'm using this food to feed uh, a family in need. I don't have to do... Like, I just... Before I came here, and I was a bit late. Ellie's was, had to wait a bit for me. But don't worry, he was on his phone, I guarantee you. I want to see his screen time. I'm sure it's going to make me cry. Mine makes me cry. Um, I had a meeting with a guy who said to me that four years ago, he volunteered at his nephew's bar mitzvah for Leckett picking beets and how inspirational it was for him, how much it got him thinking about... Issues of food waste and feeding the poor and composting and, and uh, you know, okay, he said, I lived in Brooklyn the last four years. I've been a little bit Brooklynified, um, but, but the point was made, we don't have to do very much to inspire people. Yes, when I'm trying to get people to donate money, you may have to go a little bit further. And by the way, let's not kid ourselves. A charismatic, articulate, infectious personality goes both ways. There are plenty of people who, behind my back, say, oh, Lekka, Gitler, that guy's really good at what he does. Someone else will give him the money, okay? <laughs> you know, the difference I like to say is between the, the business world and my world is, if you're running a hedge fund and you give good returns, people throw money at you. If you're running a good charity and you have good returns, let's say like Lekka has, you know, good years of good, of good, um, good returns, good production every year, growth, people say, oh, they're good at what they do. They'll find the money somewhere else. <laughs> we're laughing, but I'm telling you, but that's, that's my life, okay? And so we work extremely hard Got it. with our messaging and to try to keep our donors with us. In fact, today we're inaugurating, for the first time ever, a call center for lapsed donors, which we never did. We will not buy lists, even though that works. People do it. There's a reason they do it. <laughs> we don't buy lists. We don't send out unsolicited mailings. But we have thousands and thousands of people who've donated, let's say, over the last five years, that we consider laps, and we're going to try to get them back with a phone call. Which, again, okay, so this goes to my next question, which, ideas, right? You know, how do you get, because again, you know, it's one thing just to, you know, you, you build it up, you're getting there, you're corporate, but you have to come up with ideas. Yeah. And right, and leader needs to be the one to either come up with it or find the right people around him to come up with it. So, you know, how do you get the, you know, what are the, the great ideas, and there are, no, I, I know you, you built the new warehouse over here and you got the, the food trucks going. I mean, and then different ways of raising funds, etc. So are they coming? Did you see my new video yet? No. Okay, I didn't post it on Facebook yet. You should have gotten it. You give us enough money to get that. I, I got to talk to someone. I, I, I saw the I saw doors video about the box. Oh. So. No, no, we have a, a, a new video. It's like corny as anything. <laughs> they were here filming me in my house for like 10 hours. <laughs> I, I, I'll have to check why you didn't get it because okay. that, that's, that's concerning. But look, I think there's two things you bring up, okay, that are, again, important. I don't consider myself a particularly creative person. I'm not artistic. In the nonprofit sector, let get specific. I seem to be creative. 
and I seem to come up with ideas that have moved the needle in our work. And I know that our staff comes to me when they just want to talk through ideas. Sometimes it'd be my, my idea, maybe I'm good at fleshing it out, or or I may came, come up with something creative or they think that's creative. Not that I have 100% batting average, no one does. I think more important is a lot of us come up with good ideas. You need to surround yourself with the right people who um, who can really bring ideas to fruition. I was just reading the other day, I can't remember whose book it was, but but he basically said, even if he when he meets someone he thinks is amazing, even if he doesn't have a job opening, he hires them anyway. He says, we'll find something for them to do. It's hard to do that in a not-for-profit, you know, but if you're Apple or Google and you meet, you, know, you have all the money in the world, those are the kind of things that you can do. And I've been very, very lucky. Um, not that I get it right all the time. I've had some real disasters. Uh, but overall, I've uh, been very lucky that we've brought in people, at especially the senior level, who are really committed to our work, which is number one. They're not there just punching a clock. No one gets paid enough in a nonprofit world to just punch a mm-hmm. clock. And they've taken the organization. Look, the proof for me always is that our CEO, um, if he was on here, he'd, he'd admit it. He really took the job at Leckett just on a, on a whim. Uh, he deserved it, but he thought, you know, I'll go back to tech. He was a tech guy for many years. It's the best job he's ever had in his life. He, he, took, oh, he, he came in as our COO, put his stamp on the organization quickly, became the CEO very quickly. And when we started, uh, we had 30 employees and a budget of a million and a half dollars. Today we have 110 employees and a budget of $14 million cash. You know, the value of the food this year should be somewhere about 80, 60, 70, 80 million dollars. So, you know, those are the kind of people you want to bring in. We have a COO. She's changing everything around. The not, one of the nice things we have in Israel is, is the, the nonprofit world is very robust and uh, people want to get into it. And so we've been able to hire really top-notch uh, people. And that's most important. I also am very comfortable giving up my power. I'm very comfortable with people leading the charge. And it's really hard to, if you're not, if, if you're a micromanager, which I'm definitely not, um, it's very hard for things to move along. And that's why every, very often my wife says to me, uh, you don't know anything about what's going on in your own organization. <laughs> um, it's not purposeful, but that's really the only way to let people uh, lead is by letting go. Well, so so you, you were CEO for a while, right? And then executive director. Was, I didn't have enough chutzpah uh, to call myself. We were too small, in my estimation. Okay, but but you you were you were leading. Then you you merged with another organization, right? Table table, yeah. Leckett took on Leckett. But that's not an easy thing. And again, leadership, you know, comes in many ways. And one of the things a leader, again, it, it's almost like it goes against the grain, yeah. is to. To say, I'm not going to be the leader of the actual company. I want to go beyond that. I don't want to be CEO, but I want to... Did you have... It seems like you didn't have trouble with it, but, you know, it definitely is, you know... I do not have founders. What do they call founders syndrome? (laughs) I don't have... Look, part of it was personal. I wanted to have a certain kind of lifestyle, and, you know, remaining as the guy running the operations day-to-day would have made that an impossibility, and I learned very quickly. You know, one big mistake I made in the beginning, back to that, was... uh, the first summer after I started Leckett, I left for the summer. And I left our one or two employees on their own. Big mistake. Uh, inconsiderate um, to like a millionth degree and unacceptable. 
And I'm really, I'm just very, very lucky that the whole organization didn't blow up. And it was just the wrong thing to do. And I should have been less selfish. So that's a really, now I, now that came to me, that like, <laughs> I think about that. That was the major big mistake that I made. But I don't have founder syndrome. Um, I also knew, like, at a certain point, I felt like I need a native Israeli in to run this thing. Mm-hmm. My role, whether I like it or not, my role is to create a certain cult of personality around me fundraising, marketing, ideas, stewardship, general leadership, strategic leadership. And that's what I spend my time doing. I I am, you know, if I get too involved in logistics, Giddy, our CEO, will say to me, don't you have a trip to take? Like, shouldn't you be somewhere else? And I I also, look, I'm I'm very careful with what fights I pick. You know, I pick pick my battles very carefully. Um, I suggest, I cajole, they take, take this call center. Again, if Giddy was here sitting next to me, if this was a co-interview, mm-hmm. I would say to him, Giddy, how many years have I been saying we need a call center? Okay, four years, five years. But to a point, I push it because I say, you know, I'm not running. You know, at some point he could say to me, welcome back, Mr. CEO. You want to run this show? <laughs> you know, so I, and, and, you know, when it comes to hiring, right? So, yes, if it's someone in the fundraising department, I might interview them. I might take, uh, or when we hired a COO because that was a major position, you know, we have a new CFO we hired in the last six months. I met him when he started his job because mm-hmm. it's not my role anymore. And that's not the way of empowering our employees. The employees in Lekit have also learned, like, when I transitioned, when there was a problem, people used to still try to go around Giddy's back. And I just, you know, I would call Giddy, what do you want me to do? And he'd say, this is not your job anymore. <laughs> Letters, voicemails, calls. You have to know your place. I think that's also maybe a, a real leader knows their place in the organizational hierarchy and structure. doesn't matter if you're the biggest shareholder, right? You could have a private company. You have an outside CEO. You brought that CEO in for a reason. And if you don't, it will not work if you don't give up power. Correct. Okay, so a couple of things that I want to move on from there. Yeah. Right? So what is you know what do you feel is the most important in terms of like right for you to um i would say convey is it the mission is it the core value is it your vision and then the second part is how do you communicate that to your team right because now it's interesting because again you're not the ceo you're more on the you know you you're the chairman you are the one that's doing a lot more of the front man fundraising etc But are you still communicating it? Are you are you like you know the one that's going to, or they just you lead by example? So I think it's a great question. Um, I'd say day to day leadership and hopefully inspiration, you know, really has to come from our CEO and from the general management because each of our projects has its own management, um, and that's really his job to inspire them. You know, I I uh, every time though there's a holiday party or. Um, I always get it like I'm always the headliner mm-hmm. you know if you come to any big Leckett event it's always you know when's Joseph getting up not because I'm some brilliant speaker but that's just what's expected and I better come up with something funny and inspirational yeah. uh, whatever that be and whatever language that's in also so I think my role is 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 secondary in the day to day but but important still in the in the long term in the bigger picture but of course, you know, Leckett has many stakeholders. And this inspiration has to happen. You know, we have not-for-profit stakeholders who are, at the end of the day, those are my most important stakeholders. They're the ones getting the food. They're dealing with the poor. They're getting the battered woman. 
out of her situation. They're educating the kid so he doesn't end up in the same situation as parent. That's why I exist. That's why like it exists as an organization. But I have financial donors, right? We need to keep informed, inspired, writing checks. You know, we have volunteers, right? I spend, here, let's take last night. Where was I last night? By the way, there's a lot of stuff I do that no one in the organization even, you know, one person might know, but people don't see me. Sometimes they say, are you ever coming to the office? I have one very good friend, our, one of our very good friends, Shmuel, who recently FaceTimed me. He said, where are you? He said, in the office. I've never seen your office before. Okay, but last night at 9.30 at night, I was talking to Rotary Ranana, you know, and hopefully inspiring, uh, you know, 30 older people because they wanted to hear about what Leka does. I'm willing to do, I'm, really, I'm willing to talk to anyone, meet with anyone. I'm, I know on next week I'm going to one of the big uh, high schools in Tel Aviv. I think it's like... 7th and 8th grade, 250 Israeli kids. I have no clue. We'll see how it goes. So I think that's also an important thing for me is I want to spread, you know, you asked about this, I want to spread the message. It's not so much about like it, but I want to show people you can move countries, you can pick up, change your life completely, what you're doing, make a success out of it, and happens to be the topic that Leket deals in 15 years ago was almost irrelevant to most people. And today, when you talk about things like food waste, when you talk about things like ugly fruits and vegetables, people aren't looking at you like they don't know what you're talking about. It is a topic on multiple levels, especially for the younger generation. You know, everyone's talking about straws, they're talking, <laughs> but people understand. Now, does that change behaviors? That takes a long time to trickle down. Got it. So we have about another ten minutes or so. So I want to go Gen- through. Go generous through, with your time. <laughs> go through a little <laughs> bit more. Um, so, what do you think is a characteristic that you believe uh, a leader should possess? I mean, that one of the things I will say is that that is spreading the message of being open to really speaking to anyone, right? Which is what you just said, right? Going to whether it's to senior seniors, whether it's to high school students. I mean, but is there something that that you've seen from other people? Um, in organizations or for, that you yourself think is, is something that, you know, a leader is, you know, possesses a certain trait. So I think, look, perhaps a not-for-profit sector is a little different than the for-profit sector, but I think openness is not something that gets talked about a lot, but I've found very valuable. Um, being open with your employees. Um, ethics, I know that sounds like big deal, ethics. <laughs> The not-for-profit world has as many ethical challenges as the for-profit world. Okay, like it's a big organization. There's a lot of money swirling around. Um, we, you know, we deliver. We don't deliver like when you buy uh, an iPhone. Um, you know, there's an implicit promise on what you're getting. You know, it's going to work a certain way, and if it doesn't, you can return it or get it fixed. I, I, I'm delivering uh, dreams. Um, to my donors, but a real product to the people who utilize our services. And so uh, the the ethics of really delivering what we promise to our donors is very, very important. And we talk about that a lot in organizations. So I think um, making it very clear to people that that this is not leadership that's just about money or profits, but about ethical leadership is very important. That's a challenge. It's a challenge in the for-profit world. And the nonprofit world as well. And I'm very lucky, again, uh, that our senior team, I have very supra 
ethical people, and if there's even uh, a smell. Look, I know now we just we just opened a visitor center. You'll see it next time you're by. A mobile visitor center. Um, we got a donation for this four years ago, and we just we couldn't get it done. The right thing, and you know we just kept on. You know we could have. God knows what we could have done, but we kept on updating the donor and telling him what the situation is and why we don't have it yet. And thankfully for us, this guy was cool. Okay, because it's in memory of his father, and eventually could have just said, give me back my money. But he trusted us, and that's also, that's, that's years, that's building up equity in your brand name. And that's also big, you know, the, what do we say in Hebrew? Shem tov me shem tov, like your good name, and that's a big part of what I do. A big part of my job is to keep the good name of Leket as squeaky clean as I can. So again, that's why ethics, uh, if I get a whiff of something I don't like, I got to dive in as quickly as I can. Right, so, so just in terms of the mobile, what, what do you mean by, is it uh, like a roving truck? Like The, the it, idea of this place, I don't know how mobile it's actually going to be because I saw yesterday what it's going to take to move it, but it is a, it, it, think of a container, mm-hmm. and inside the container we built, uh, we have about seating for 40, and we have TV screens, and you're going to come in there, you'll watch a video about like a consistent video instead of different people talking about what we do. Mm-hmm. You can swipe your credit card, give us a donation. Maybe there'll be a water machine in mm-hmm. there. And we hope, it's sitting at our warehouse now, we hope like when we have an open picking day on holiday season, we have a lot of people coming that will actually move the truck to the field yeah. and then you'll get a much more consistent message from us as opposed to each person who gets up talks about you know their view on like and what like it. Um, what like it stands for? I can't, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how mobile it is, whether it's mobile in name. The reason it has to be mobile is because we plopped it down at our warehouse and we're not allowed to plop down anything at our yeah. warehouse. So it's actually sitting on a flatbed truck, truck with wheels. Got it. No, I hear that. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of where you are now, right? So starting off, going all the way back from, you know, 2003 to where you are now, a lot's changed. You've grown as a leader. What are some of you know? What is the challenge that you think you're facing now? Right again, you're in a different position. Right now, you're on the, you're, you're more out facing. You're not doing more the day to day logistics, um, you know. But again, you still have a lot to, you know, get people on board from whether it's donors, whether it's more volunteers, you know, etc. So, what do you see as a challenge that you're facing now? So, I would return to something to, I alluded alluded to before: victim of our own success. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a really tough one to get past because people look at you and say you're out of your mind. Leave me alone. Look how big like it got. Look how big your budget is. It's true, but when you're trying to grow your budget by ten percent a year, which today you're talking of over a million dollars a year in finance, with waiting lists for food, with the knowledge that you're collecting less than five percent of the food that's available, so that really grinds on you. And when you come back from an overseas trip or or a meeting from a major a local donor, and, you know, your staff is really committed, and the first thing they say to you is, so, how'd you do? Um, Can we buy that new truck? That's really the biggest challenge. It's really hard when you're successful in an organization to get people, lay leadership to really help you. You know, every every organization dreams that their people are going to make them introductions, and people are going to host evenings, and people are going to put together events. And I'm not saying we don't have any people like that. We have some people like that. But it is really hard to find them. Uh, the few we've had over the years, I, I, I try to explain to them that they don't get how miraculous they are. <laughs> and how much we try to keep them 
close to us because how impossible it is to get that kind of help. So some of this may, to people listening, some of this may sound like uh, someone who's really spoiled when there are organizations that are struggling to even make their basic budgets, but when you're pushing hard and you're trying to grow, in the shoes I'm sitting in, that can be very grating when, um, you know, dreams that you have, you just can't fulfill. Are you comfortable with people looking at you as a leader? I think so. Look, I think, you know, you don't want to sound... By the way, the funny thing is, you know, people always say, oh, he has no ego. Look how he gave up the organization. Look, and of course, that's... You can't build anything without ego. We have ego as human beings. Um, so, of course, the ego says yes. And if it helps Leket, you know, I'm a very public face. I'm willing to do almost anything for Leket. There are articles about me all the time. I'm mm-hmm. on TV all the time. So I don't need to be famous for any reason unless it's for a positive purpose. I'm not being famous for the sake of being famous. I know that it helps uh, the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's most important, though, for me is I like to use the leadership skills that I've gained and, more importantly, the experience that I've gained to try to help other organizations. So I do endless mentoring and advising of dozens, sometimes hundreds, of other charities, small and large, Mm -hmm. who I hope, I believe, I pray are benefiting from the time they spend with me. I'm honored that they call me. And the nice thing is, in the world I'm in, except for our financial donor list, there are no secrets. So there's no question anyone could ask me (laughs) that I'm not going to answer. Well, thank you so much for your time, Joseph. It was If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends about it as well. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Lastly, don't forget to check out my other podcast, Plugged In. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.